Welcome to another edition of WNXS News. I'm Jank E. And I'm Kit Harding. Thank you for joining us. Our top story. The Magic Story team has cut a larger than usual amount of blowback for its portrayal of Killian Liu, one of the students of Strixhaven. Killian is a student of Silver Quill, and his father is one of the two deans, and is known for pushing him remarkably hard in order to live up to his family's legacy. Before we continue, we want to acknowledge up front that everyone writing this show is white. And therefore not always in a position to judge the impact of racist stereotypes. So we have made an effort to base our coverage of this story on issues raised by Asian voices speaking out in the community. To that end, we have included links on the show page to some of those voices in order to ensure that we are amplifying people and not speaking over them. In a lot of Western media portrayals of East Asian cultures, we see what is known as the tiger parent trope. Asian characters are portrayed as being driven to do well because of family pride, pressure from parents, or vaguely defined honor. Killian's character appears to play into all of those stereotypes. Since we haven't seen very many overtly Asian-inspired characters outside of explicitly Asian-inspired planes, even fewer taking center stage, and fewer still Asian-inspired humans, this has played into the pop culture flattening of Asian culture into only a few elements. Consequently, reception of Killian has been largely negative. Community members on Twitter have pointed to Killian's portrayal amplifying the model minority stereotype around Asian Americans. This is also frequently the only story being told about Asian cultures in Western media, which, again, fails to encompass a breadth of experiences and contributes to assumptions made about Asian Americans in the real world. Remember, so-called positive discrimination is still discrimination. And still unpleasant to be on the receiving end of. Others find Killian relatable, but remain disappointed or upset that Magic has chosen to use one of its only Asian main characters to portray an experience which is intensely painful for those who have experienced something like it. A few have expressed hope that the story itself might defy the setup, delivering a nuanced, complex character. But, given Magic's track record with racial representation, it doesn't seem likely. This ball drop comes on the heels of the story team's biggest success in the last two years with the Call Time story. One step forward, two steps back, huh? It seems that way. It's even impacted some of the longest-standing Forthos community podcasts, like the Lorgoifs, who have announced that they are taking a sabbatical while they decide if they want to keep being involved with Magic Story. On our next episode, we'll actually have a conversation about this with two of the Lorgoifs, as well as some of the other things regarding Story over the last couple of years. The story isn't the only thing we've seen regarding Strixhaven. Spoilers for Strixhaven started in full on March 25th, giving us a mix of previews for the main set, the commander decks, and the mystical archive cards. We go now to Diz to hear more about it. Diz? Thanks, Kit. There's an awful lot to talk about with this set, and it's not even fully spoiled yet. So far, we've been introduced to the new mechanics Magecraft and Lesson Learn. 
Magecraft is made for spell singing, given some kind of payoff whenever you cast or copy an instant or sorcery. The effects we've seen so far include forms of ramping, life drain, and card draw. Diz, lesson learned sounds pretty interesting. Can you teach us about it? As long as you promise not to make that joke again, I'd love to. The learn mechanic lets a player either get a new subtype of spell called Lesson from their sideboard and place it into their hand, or discard a card to draw one. The Commander Rules Committee has jumped in front of the inevitable questions about abilities like this and wish cards and stated that the ability technically doesn't work for the format. As always, however, Rule Zero exists, so it's ultimately up to the playgroups. We've gotten a hint of some of the new set legends as well, including a return of Liliana Vess using the pseudonym of Professor Onyx. There are new cards for Will and Rowan Kenrith, this time as a modal dual-face card, as well as Kazmina making a new appearance. When we got our first information about the set back in January, didn't we hear something about new Elder Dragons? We did indeed. So far we've only seen one of them. Shadrick Silverquill, the founder of the Silverquill College. At 5 mana, with flying and double strike, the card would be a decent creature even without its other abilities. Shadrick states at the beginning of combat on your turn, you may choose two. Each mode must target a different player. Target player creates a 2-1 white and black inkling creature token with flying. Target player draws a card and loses one life. Target player puts a plus one plus one counter on each creature they control. If the other Elder Dragons are packing this kind of punch, the new standard and commander metas will be something to keep an eye on for sure. Have we seen any of the other legends? I, for one, am curious about the College Deans. I'm glad you asked. Much like the new Will and Rowan card, the deans of each college will be modal dual-face cards with mirrored or synergized abilities. And while not the deans, we've also seen the face commanders for each of the five commander decks that will be launched with this set. The decks look to be quite spicy indeed, so we'll have to keep our eyes open. Last, but certainly not least, we've seen a large number of the mystical archive spells. New versions of classics from Magic's history are already being shown, like Counterspell, Mind's Desire, Faithless Looting, and even Teferi's Protection. Alright, I'm sold. I am pre-ordering a box of this set as soon as I can. Just remember that when you do, the box will be set boosters, as draft booster boxes won't be available until release day itself. Jank. Thank you, Diz. We mentioned NFTs briefly in our last show, but now here we are with a fuller explanation. Their art theft meets the DRM from the Black Lagoon? That is not an explanation. It's a pyramid scheme people are buying into because blockchain. Yes, but that is also not an explanation. Oh, fine. It really is a pyramid scheme, though. NFT stands for Non-Fungible Token, and it's essentially a cryptocurrency embedded in a piece of art. Like any cryptocurrency, it displays transactions on an open distributed blockchain, which makes it possible to track transactions and therefore verify who currently owns it. In theory, it's supposed to mark digital art so it can be bought and sold from owner to owner like physical art, preventing unauthorized copies from being made. So it's a very high-tech certificate of authenticity. Except that there are no checks on whether the person to originally mark it was the real owner of the art. There's been a lot of art theft where people have made NFTs of art that doesn't belong to them. Once that happens, due to the distributed nature of the blockchain, the artists have no recourse. 
Someone made money from selling their art, but it wasn't them. Well, that's bad. But how does the pyramid scheme aspect come into this? The majority of people in the NFT market aren't there for anything other than resale value. The point isn't collecting art. It's having the token which you can sell to other people for a profit, often very quickly. It's a form of gambling, which means any money anyone gets out has to come from someone else who put money in. Meanwhile, the platforms take a percentage commission on all this money moving around. And the house always wins. Exactly. A lot of platforms charge you just to make NFTs, so if no one buys the art, you're out all that money. Wizards has currently prohibited their artists from doing this. While they're free to sell original art done for magic products, and artists who work in a digital medium have a method for creating a single physical print which they can sell, they are not permitted to make NFTs of their work. That's a step in the right direction, but we know they were caught by surprise by this, and this may not be their final policy on this matter. And if they end up permitting it, but forbidding it might not matter, given the lack of ownership verification at the starting point. In either way, people get hurt. Well, that's depressing. So let's take a break. When we come back, ISIL will give us the breakdown on the long-awaited Kaldheim Championship, which was held March 26th through the 28th. Hello, lost little one. Are you seeking guidance on this metallic plane that you can't find from the predators or from your own families? Do you need shelter in these trying times of death and misery? Why don't you come join us at the Croc Clan Ironworks? We here at the Croc Clan believe that anyone with two hands has a fighting chance to not be completed. And even though that fighting chance may be small, it's still not quite zero. We of the Croc Clan will take care of you as best we can. Or until we get ripped to shreds, no one's quite sure. Come find us. Welcome back. Iso, what happened with the championship? As it turns out, an awful lot. Days 1 and 2 consisted of a mix of historic and standard rounds of play. Each format was best of 3, which was a bit different than the last couple of set championships. Standard's most played deck was Sultai Ultimatum, a low creature deck that ramps hard and hits harder using Emergent Ultimatum to bring powerful enchantments and more to the field. Teamer Adventures was second most played, barely edging out Mono Red Aggro. Historic had Jun Sacrifice as the most common slot, followed by Orjavoras and Azorius Control in the next two slots. At the end of day one, only two players stood undefeated, Arne Hushenbeth and Andrew Cunio. Other notable names in the top 16 from that day were Autumn Burchett, Javier Dominguez, and Mike Sigrist. Day two was another fierce round of competition. After multiple rounds of slugging it out, the top eight best players were determined. This was a double elimination bracket, where the four first-round losers faced off against each other to eventually determine the second finalist. Grzegorz Kowalski and Arnie Hushabeth ended up in the top two slots, with Kowalski fighting his way past Javier Dominguez in the lower bracket to get there. When all was said and done, Arnie was crowned champion, carrying Demir Rogues through the final round in a 2-0 win. 
competitive fans will certainly hold interest in him going forward, so be sure to remember this name. The next major competition is the first Strixhaven Qualifier Weekend, April 10th and 11th. We'll be sure to be here to tell you all about it. Kit? Thanks, Isa. Magic Arena has finally come to iOS platforms, enabling even more players to be able to carry the game with them. This is still in the early stages, so updates are sure to come, but this is still an exciting announcement. One thing new searchers should remember is that when searching, include the colon in Magic the Gathering Arena. We're really excited here at WNXS News to introduce a brand new segment we're going to be calling News Brews, where we have local brewery specialists come in and talk about some of their favorite decks. With us today, we have Wildfire. Wildfire, thank you for joining us. Hey, I'm happy to be here. So tell us who the commander is that you're going to be talking about today. Right. So the commander I'm talking about today, this is Brynalyn the Mooncracken, partnered with Kodama of the East Tree. Sorry, ever, ever since Kodama was spoiled, I've been absolutely obsessed by breaking this card. It's just, it's a fantastic just cornerstone to any deck, and I thought I could do some interesting stuff with Brynalyn and cost-reducing cards. That sounds like it's a pretty vicious combo. Uh, sounds pretty spicy, though, so really excited oh, to hear yeah. about that. Uh, why don't you tell us about some of the meat and potatoes of the deck? Right. So the genesis of this deck came about when I was playing around with a prior Kodama brew. And I realized that the Great Hinge, once Kodama's in play, comes down for three mana and then lets you put into play any card that costs nine or less mana. So I I decided to try to sort of expand on that theme and run other cards that have sort of the cost reduction aspects to them. So uh, Tangle Golem and Spire Golem were were two of the first cards I pulled up for this as as sort of the meat and potatoes. And Icebreaker Kraken has really turned out to be sort of an all-star here. Um, And Galta Primal Hunger would be another great example of these sort of meat and potato cards. And this works really well with Brynalyn, who then also triggers off of those expensive cards and can bounce things to be replayed, bounce things your opponent's hand and take them off the board, etc. Sounds a uh, sounds a little vicious. I if I remember right, you've played the first version you were talking about uh, on our Wednesday night streams before, right? I, I have a couple times, yeah. I believe I remember you uh, winning those games also. <laughs> Uh, there was one game I lost where I, uh, I stopped being able to process how many scoot mob tokens I had and, uh, just decided to deck myself in Regal Force. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's a pretty, pretty powerful deck. Um, firsthand experience. I've been in some of those games. Um, so tell us about some of the veggies. How do you, how do you get to what your final goal is with the deck? What do you, what do you really do with that mana reduction? Right. So uh, sort of the core veggies, as you might call them, which is uh, fitting because it's cards like Explosive Vegetation, I set up what I like to call a 2-4 ramp system. So I run a bunch of cards at two converted mana cost, like Secure Tribe Elder, who of course goes in absolutely everything, but then also cards like Far Seek Into the North, Rampant Growth, Nature's Lore, 
So so consistently on turn two, you're going to be playing a two mana ramp spell. And then on turn three, you'll have four lands set up to play Explosive Vegetation or any of the many variants of that have been printed recently. It's like Circuitous Route or Hunting Wilds, Migration Path, Ranger's Path, mm-hmm. etc. cetera. Um, there's, there's a couple other fours you can throw in there as well, like Frontier Siege, Thran Dynamo. But either way, it sets you up pretty consistently for having six mana going into turn four so you can then play Kodama immediately play a land and get instant value off of him. Hmm. All right. Well, that sounds pretty interesting. Um, as far as the, cause every deck player, every deck builder who does a deck for something other than a competitive event puts abilities in their decks that they just, they just really want to see happen. They're not necessary for the deck to win. Uh, we might as well just call it the dessert for the deck. What would your dessert for this build be? Uh, let me uh, let me take a look here real quick. Uh, one one thing I did uh, put in here as sort of spice is a couple of different cards that uh, they they cost a lot of mana and then flashback for less mana. So specifically, uh, Roar of the Worm was really one of the one of the real spice cards I put in here because you know it, it's not a card that sees a lot of play in Commander. It just puts a six six Worm token into play and then can flash back. But the fact that the flashback is so much cheaper than this is actually a seven mana spell still, so it will trigger Brynalyn even when you're casting it from the graveyard. And then from there, I realized that Echo of Aeons would behave the same way. When you flashback from your graveyard for just three mana, it still counts as a six mana spell, triggers Brynalyn. And since you're about to shuffle everyone's hand into their deck, if you bounce something off your opponent's board, it takes it away more or less permanently. Okay, yeah, that you're right. That is pretty spicy. Um, if you have one for this particular deck, what would you say is your pet card or pet interaction um, that you just, that's the favorite thing you like to see go off when it goes off? Yeah, uh, definitely Icebreaker Kraken. It's a card that, you know, I, I put in because it was, it was new, it had cost reduction, and then I realized after after goldfishing a few games with it that it's just absolutely bonkers in this build because it's it's a twelve mana card. It reduces its cost by Snowlands. You know, most of the most of the mana base is Snowlands, so it's fairly easy to get to you know eight, nine, ten Snowlands and have the thing come down real cheap. You can then immediately put in any permanent in the deck since everything else in the deck costs twelve or less mana, and then it can bounce itself by returning three Snowlands to your hand, which normally is a fairly substantial drawback. But when you've got Kodama in play it's very trivial to put those lands back into play. So it's fairly easy to set up a loop where you're repeatedly bouncing and playing the Kraken, putting in whatever expensive cards in your hand you want. And in the process, you're triggering Brynalyn, you're triggering things like Thunderous Snapper and Emoti Celebrate of Bounty. And it's just all kinds of crazy value flying around. Um, yeah, that that's basically value yeah. city right there. All right, well, Wildfire, thank you so much for... Uh telling us all about this uh for anyone who's interested in seeing the details we're gonna have his deck list in the show notes um thank you again wildfire and hopefully we'll have you back on for another recipe sometime yeah this is great uh glad to be here our final story this edition time spiral remastered was unquestionably a success in terms of sales but was it perhaps too successful it just might have been 
What does that even mean? Well, the biggest complaint with the set has been availability. This was an intentionally limited print run, much like the modern Masters sets. However, sales outlets were quickly bought out, leading to third-party sellers raising prices on boxes and making it even harder for other players to get. So for all intents and purposes, people are taking more advantage than usual of the collectible aspect of the game? Exactly. And it's so extensive this time that many players who've been collecting for years have decided they're basically done. Why does this sound familiar? Probably because this exact scenario happened with the PlayStation 5 and Xbox Series X just a couple of months ago. But unlike those two, Time Spiral Remastered doesn't get continually reproduced. Once it's gone, it's gone for good. Magic has always been a collectible card game, but normal sets are opened much more frequently and thus increase availability of those sets. Exactly. And, as Wizards makes more of a push for special sets, we're getting a lot of sets designed to be particularly exciting draft experiences that the majority of players won't be able to draft. Which is no fun at all for a limited player like me. This is certainly something to be watching for in future sets, especially with Modern Horizons 2 right around the corner. I still haven't drafted my box of original Modern Horizons. At least you have one exciting draft experience ahead of you. Once we can leave the house and draft paper again. Hopefully that day is coming very soon. Yes, hopefully. That's all this edition. See you next time. Same time, new news. <laughs>